You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Romans chapter 12. We're picking up right after what we've called the the continental divide in the book of Romans. A big shift takes place. And as we read this, I think you'll, you'll notice again what we referred to last time. If you would stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together. Let's read the first eight verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, although many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in a proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, and the one who teaches in his teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we we thank you so much for your, your word. Lord, we thank you that that you give us commands, that there are portions of scripture in which you clearly express to us how we are to live and how we are to follow you. Lord, I pray that you give us the grace to do what you command. Give us the power, give us the strength. Lord, I pray that as we look at verse two this morning, that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would help us to see the world in in which we live and how powerful it is and how it competes for our thoughts and our devotions. Lord, I pray that we would long to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Lord, and we pray that you would do that this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Last time we were in this text, we said that in verses 1 and 2, we, we quoted H.B. Charles Jr., and he said that in these verses, there was an ocean of truth in a teaspoon of words. And he was right. He was absolutely right. 
We also said last week that we were at a point of great divide, a continental divide, as it were, in the book of Romans. It's a dividing point between gospel truth and law, or what has been called indicative or truths about what God has done for us in Christ, moving us to imperatives or commands that are based on those indicatives. To illustrate... This, we notice that in Romans 1 through 11, there are three commands. And in the rest of the book, chapters 12 through 80, or sorry, chapters 12 through 16, there are 80 commands. An average of 16 commands per chapter remaining. Certainly, we are in a territory in the book of Romans that is new. There is a a great change that has taken place. And we noticed last time that the command in verse one was simple in one respect. The command was give yourself to God. Based on the mercies of God, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. It sounds simple enough. But being a living sacrifice isn't natural and it isn't easy. Or to use another biblical image, to be a slave isn't glorious. It isn't a glorious prospect. In fact, enrolling yourself as a sacrifice or volunteering yourself for chief slave seems a bit out of character for pretty much all people. Paul clearly says here that we are to look back onto the mercies of God. He draws our attention to to all that he has unpacked in the first 11 chapters. And when we do that, our sacrifice, our offering our bodies as a living sacrifice will seem reasonable. It'll seem logical and spiritual. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says here, that offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is like it is holy, acceptable to God, which is our logical, reasonable, spiritual worship. As we turn to verse 2, one commentator mentioned that really in, in verse 2, there's, there's two key words here that, that leap off the page. There's two key words in the text, and they are the words world and do not conform. The word world in the Greek literally means age. So the idea would be this present age. Do not conform. That word is a compound word having at its root meaning to scheme. So the idea is do not let the age in which you live force you into its scheme of thinking and behaving. The idea here is that the world has its way of thinking and doing things, and it exerts pressure on Christians to conform. But instead of being conformed, Christians are to be changed from within to be increasingly like Jesus. So the second verse in Romans chapter 12 is essentially a warning against worldliness. 
So we need to ask the question, what exactly is worldliness? We need to, to make it clear what is, is meant here in the, in the text, not our idea of what worldliness is, but what is meant in the text. In the church that I was raised in, we had a pastor when I was very young. He would say uh, that we don't smoke or chew or go with those that do. In other words, worldliness was understood in the pursuit of drinking and dancing and playing cards and in some of those things. Those were worldly things. But that isn't what Romans 12, 2 is all about. And the reason that it's not about those things or those behaviors is because actually those things, just naming a few of those things like that, trivializes what is far more serious and a far more subtle problem. The reason I say that is because Paul isn't only concerned with outward actions here, the smoking and chewing and drinking and those outward actions. He's concerned with the underlying way of thinking that leads to sinful behavior. For instance, the girl that would date the guy that smokes and drinks and chews to stay with the same illustration must have a reason. Right? Whatever the deal is, the girl that, that dates the guy that is involved in, in sinful behavior, no matter what it is, those things I listed are any sinful behavior. The, the one who dates that person must have in their mind a reason why that is okay. Paul would say she has been conformed to the wisdom of this age a worldly way of thinking. And that that mind needs to be transformed. That's the next phrase. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Worldliness that is in view here isn't just a list of do's and don'ts. It's an underlying way of thinking that influences our behavior. Our behavior flows from our thinking. And it's our thinking then that needs to be set straight. Would suggest that the way in which we live, the the behaviors, the the sin in which we are involved in, that those behaviors come from a way of thinking that needs to be transformed. It needs to be set right. Really what we're talking about here is what's been called our our worldview, which is a, a systematic way of looking at things. We are to to break away from the world's way of thinking and instead let our minds be molded and shaped by the word of God. The general consensus of those that I read on this is that Christians have not done very well in this area at all. And the reason given, and it's right, I think, and the reason that is right, I believe, is that Christians are worldly 
in other senses too. It's really sad actually, survey after survey that comes out seems to verify that Christians in general have most or many of the same values and behavior patterns as the world around them. And it comes from the way in which we're thinking. For instance, in 2017, Barna Research did a survey on how other worldviews influenced Christians. They found, for instance, that 61% of Christians considered they, 50, 61% of Christians that considered their faith to be important to them that intended church on a regular basis believed in ideas rooted in new age spirituality. 61%. Over half of Christians that consider their faith important to them that attend church on a regular basis resonate with postmodern views. Over a, a third are associated with Marxism. 29% believe in ideas associated with what Barna calls secularism. Is Romans 12 too relevant today? Are we being conformed to the world and in need of transformation? Absolutely. We ask the question, what is worldliness? If it's not the behaviors, the smoking, the drinking, all of that, what is it? If it's a way of thinking, we really need to define what we mean. So far, we've just said that it's contrary to the Christian worldview and noted a couple things along the way, New Age, Marxism, postmodernism. And from my understanding, there's really no single word that perfectly describes how the world thinks but I, I think that secularism is a pretty good term. I'm using the word a, a little bit differently than Barna, I would guess. I would use it as an umbrella term that covers other isms that would fall underneath it, like humanism, relativism, pragmatism, pluralism, hedonism, materialism. And of course, Marxism and postmodernism are secular ideas as well. James Boyce says it this way. He says, the word secular also comes closest to what Paul says when he refers to the pattern of this world. The word secular is derived from a Latin word that means age. And the word world here in verse two is the exact Greek equivalent. So according to Boyce, the command here is not to be conformed to this age, that command would be stated, or it could be stated, do not be secularist in your worldview. Now at this point, we should note that there is a right way to be secular. As Christians, we live in, in this world. We're concerned about this world's affairs and we have legitimate secular concerns. But that isn't what we're talking about. Notice the ism at the end of the word, secularism. We're talking about a, a philosophy that doesn't look beyond the world, but operates as if this age is all there is. R.C. Sproul helps us here. He says, for secularism, all life, every human value, every human activity must be understood in light of this present time. 
What matters is now and only now. All access to the above and the beyond is blocked. There's no exit from the confines of this present world. The secular is all that we have. We must make our decisions, live our lives, make our plans, all within the closed arena of this time here and now, end quote. Here's the thing that we ought to notice instantly. This is the viewpoint that we are surrounded by every single day of our lives. It's in every place and in every circumstance. You can't watch a TV show. You can't watch any form of advertisement. You can't watch any news broadcast. You can't visit a financial advisor. And the list goes on. We are surrounded by secularism day in and day out. So the text before us is important in that it is saying that we are not to be conformed to the world system that is all around us, that is everywhere. That world system that speaks subtly and subtly influences us and conforms us to this age says, this is all there is. We are to see things as relating to God and eternity. That's how we're supposed to be. That's how we're supposed to see everything. But let's start with an idea, a better idea of maybe what secularism is. Since it's an umbrella term, it might help to just briefly look at some of the other isms that fall underneath it. First, Humanism. Humanism. Let me just make a a distinction here between humanism and humanitarianism. Humanitarianism is caring for other people. That's a good thing. We're talking about a, a philosophy, a way of looking at people and ourselves apart from God in humanism, and that is very wrong. It's a secular way of looking at them. Humanism is the assertion that there is no supernatural and it really leads to a deification of ourselves, of making ourselves into a God. Just think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four. He was on the roof of his palace looking over his kingdom and he said this, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Notice just a couple things. He takes credit here both for the beauty of what he is seeing and the establishment of the kingdom. And then he goes so far as to say that all of this points to him as the pinnacle. And he is suggesting that the kingdom of Babylon was not only built by him, but it serves to glorify him as well. This is what humanism does. By identifying, or by by denying supernatural, it places humanity as the pinnacle and actually deifies self. One humanist famously said that there is no God to save us. If we are to be saved, we must save ourselves. Of course, he isn't speaking about eternity. He isn't speaking about heaven and hell. He is an atheist. 
He's speaking about the AIDS epidemic. He's speaking about cancer, these things that plague the human race. And he's saying that it's all up to us, nothing else. We live in a world where the tendency is, even in the Christian world, to look first to humanity for answers and then look to God. Let me give you one example. I watched uh, a webinar on how to reach the younger generation the other day, and there were some good things in it, but the underlying theme of it was we need to get the younger generation involved, which is good. We need to create a place where they can ask questions about faith. This is good. I think the church should give space for questions. After all, the Bible says that we ought to be ready with an answer to them. That's ought to be done with gentleness and respect and love. When it came to the, the, the church, the ones hosting the webinar said that, that we need to change the way in which we do church. They said before the church would say that one must believe in order to belong to the church. They said, but today this doesn't work anymore. People need to belong to the church And then in belonging, hopefully, they will come to believe. This is humanism, plain and simple. We elevate ourselves to such a place where we discern the the culture of the church. We reorganize the church. Who cares about what God says? We reorganize and do what works. We don't care what the Bible says when it says we ought to strive for a regenerate church membership. We know better. We become the pinnacle. It's deifying humanity. And besides, it's pragmatism run amok. Pragmatism is an an ideology that says something is true based on what seems to work out in practice. It's a philosophy of this age. So when we say secularism, we mean humanism. We mean pragmatism. We also mean relativism. This was talked about in the survey that we mentioned earlier, where over half of Christians resonate with postmodern views. Simply, relativism says that there is no moral absolutes. Just think about where this kind of thinking in world philosophy has gotten us. Think of the question of gender identity, the hot subject in the world around us and in the church today. A recent survey from GLAAD, a a gay and lesbian advocacy group in Harris Poll, indicate that 20% of young people, 18 to 34, identify as LGBTQ. 20%. Now, there's some question as to the legitimacy of those findings, since we know that the statistics concerning the LGBT are much lower Notice I left off the queue, just under 5%. So just under 5% of the population identifies with LGBT, gay, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. So the, the boost in that number centers around the letter Q in all of that. And that is if the Q stands for questioning. In other words, there are a lot of 18 to 34 year olds that are questioning their identity in some fashion. And the question is, why? 
Why is that? It's secularism. And to be more specific, it's relativism. When there are no absolute genders, there's no absolute boy, girl, male, female, when those things are fluid and can change, there's no wonder 15% of 18 to 34-year-olds might question gender. Because we don't know, to begin with, what's right and what's wrong. When sexual ethics are fluid and there's no moral absolute, it opens the door to all sorts of sexual perversions. Tell me that the world philosophy isn't prevalent in our age. It is. And it's impacting the church more and more, subtly, over and over. Secular humanism is humanism, pragmatism, relativism, it's also materialism. This is the idea that the, the cosmos is all there is or ever will be or ever was. So really, what is of value then is only the material. Be as healthy as you can, live as long as you can, get as rich as you can. Why? Because that is where value lies. A good life is where one is materially wealthy. Just think of modern day heroes for a moment. Not like Superman. Real people that we look up to. There's a, a video that's being shared on social media in the recent days of a, a football player at a press conference talking about his faith. A pro football player. It was good. Very encouraging. In that video, he was, he was talking about the meaning of life, which is Christ. He's not a, ashamed of his savior, he actually confronts a, a, more, uh, a materialistic culture. But just the whole scene is a bit ironic. He's surrounded by all of these people listening to what he has to say because he's a pro football player. Millions of people are watching him because he's a pro football player. And that is of great value in the eyes of millions and millions of people. All the cameras there are there because he is rich and famous. The video is shared of him because he is rich and famous, not just some Joe Schmo in some church somewhere standing up for truth. I mean, I applaud what he had to say. But if he was not who he is and our culture isn't the way it is, he wouldn't have gotten the airtime. Materialism is a fascination with stuff. But it isn't only a fascination with stuff. It's that in stuff, we find meaning and we find ultimate value. For instance, wealth and health are not bad things. What is wrong is when we start to find our meaning and value in them. We define ourselves by those things. The story of the a rich young ruler, for instance. Jesus didn't say when the guy came up to him, you're rich, therefore you can't be saved. He said, go sell what you own, give it to the poor. And we are told that he went away sad because he had many possessions. He was wealthy. In other words, it wasn't the many possessions that he had it wasn't his wealth. It was the meaning that he found in them. 
His wealth defined him, and he was not willing to give that up. In fact, because of his wealth, he was willing to give Jesus up. We could say a lot more about secularism, but let's just suffice it to say this. Uh, in 1963, there was a book written by one of C.S. Lewis's students, and he called the book The Christian Mind. And the thesis of that book was that there was no longer a Christian mind, meaning that there was no longer a distinct way to think that was decidedly Christian. In other words, in 1963, he said, Christians have been so conformed to the world around them that there's no distinct way of of viewing anything as, as Christian anymore. Isn't that sad? In 1985, Neil Postman published a a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, a fascinating read. I read it in Bible college, have not forgotten it. Let me just touch a couple of areas that that he talked about in that book. There's a chapter in that book that deals with news on TV, and he called it Now and This. He notes that phrase because that's how news works. Here's a story, and now this. He said there's just a 45-second story here, another 45-second story here. One is passed to the other. No linking. No relevance from one to the other. And he says the problem with that is that, that, that any kind of rational thought about a subject requires connections. For Postman, the news on TV gives news without consequences, without value, and therefore is valueless and exists only for the purpose of pure entertainment. It teaches us to be mindless, he says. News actually doesn't teach us to think. The most interesting part of the book was in the area of religion, a chapter in which he titled Shuffle Off to Bethlehem, He notes that religion on TV is mainly as well for entertainment purposes. Billy Graham might be the exception, but he says that nearly everything that makes religion real is lost in the translation from the church to the television. Postman says this, I'll even quote him. He says, everything that makes religion an historic, profound, sacred human activity is stripped away. There is no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, and above all, no sense of spiritual transcendence. On these shows, the preacher is tops, and God comes out a second banana. We need to note that Neil Postman was not a Christian. He was an observer. And somebody might say, well, Okay, but that's religion on TV. True religion is still found in the church. James Boyce argues that the pervasive impact of television and the pressures of the world have inevitably come to make church services, much church services, many of them irrelevant and as entertaining as television has. We've copied television in the way we do church, in other words. He goes on to say that a majority of church services, there are no, almost no pastoral prayers, but there are many brainless, there's much brainless music, chummy chatter, abbreviated sermons. Preachers are personable. They tell funny stories. They stay away from things that make people unhappy. Sermons are about felt needs, not real needs. 
Basically, he says that much of the church today is telling people exactly what they want to hear. The same thing that TV does for entertainment purposes. Now, after all of this, I want to impress on you one thought related to the command here in verse 2. The command, do not be conformed to this world. And that is that your mind matters. Secularism is all around us. We're in the, the battle for our hearts and our minds. We used to say, James Dobson said, um, long time ago, that to parents, you know, our kids are in a battle their, for their hearts and their, their minds. That's true. Just think about the kids and the parents have already lost the battle. Your mind matters. Your mind, parent, grandparent. Isn't that kind of the whole point of the grandparenting class? Your mind matters. Pass down what you know. Secularism is all around us. There's a battle whether we notice it or not. And according to a majority of surveys, we are losing that battle. Little by little. And we're not just saying that the solution here is to start thinking about Christian things. The fact is that we can and do think about Christian things in a very secular way. Some things we tried to highlight this morning. I'll go a little bit further beyond just saying that your mind matters, and I will say that if your mind is not being transformed by the renewal of your mind, then the other option is that it will be conformed to the age in which we live. There's no middle here, folks. That's how pervasive secularism is. It will change our thinking before we ever realize our thinking has been changed. Most of us don't see ourselves as relativists or humanists. But we're influenced by these things more than we realize we are. And we will continue to be influenced by them. The conformity might be subtle. It might be hardly noticeable. But constant, subtle conformity is conformity. And the sad part is that when it happens, we don't even know it. That's how dangerous it is. Just look at what's going on in many of the denominations in our, in our world today. The things that they're struggling with. The whole social justice movement in church is an example of this. The whole issue of who's qualified to be a pastor in a church is an example of this. Those things aren't serious theological or or biblical questions. The text is clear. The example of secularism subtly infiltrating the church. Everything from humanism to Marxism to New Age mysticism run amok in the church today. 
And most people don't even recognize the subtle conformity that's taking place. My point this morning is that we need to take this command very seriously in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the life of our church. Do not be conformed in your thinking, but let your thinking be shaped by the word of God. And to do that, we need to spend a a considerable amount of time with the word of God in seeking and, and working to understand it properly. Just think for a moment here about the word transformed. In Greek, the word here is where we get our English word metamorphosis. When you think of that word, you think of a science class where we learned of a a caterpillar turning into a butterfly through this process of metamorphosis. This amazing change where you go in one way and you come out another. The idea is a process whereby we are being changed. The world caters to this, in a sense. How would you like to change? What do you want to change about yourself? You want to be skinnier, taller? You want to be better looking? In your inbox, TV, advertisements on internet, highlight that most people are not satisfied in in one way with themselves. It's all about changing yourself, bettering yourself. Self-help books have made hundreds and hundreds of, of millions of dollars because people are not satisfied with themselves and they long for change. But just as advertising is vying for our allegiance at every turn, so is the philosophy of the world. And the command here is, first of all, do not be conformed. And I want you to notice in closing that the only way not to be conformed is to be transformed. The only way not to be conformed is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This starts at conversion. It starts with union with Christ, placing our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, who was perfect, who lived a life that, that we couldn't live. Where we sinned, he excelled. Where we deserve the just penalty for our sin, he secured life for all of those who had placed their faith and trust in him. And when he went to the cross, he took all of the sin, all of the the wrath of God that, that was due us and bore it on his body so that we might know freedom, so that we might not experience condemnation. We might be set free from that. This transformation spoke of here starts at conversion. And this morning, if you recognize, you know, been conformed to the world and I I need to be transformed. I want you to notice something here. That's something that you cannot just set out to do on your own. That's something that you can't just muster enough strength in and of yourselves and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That takes something absolutely supernatural, totally contrary to humanism. Humanism says you can do it yourself. Christianity says it takes a supernatural act of God. The Bible calls it being born again. Spiritual birth. It starts at conversion when we're unified with Christ, when we're given a a new heart, a new mind. 
And that heart then is continually being transformed by the Spirit of God as he uses the Word of God in our life. God's speaking to us. The only way we're not conformed is to be transformed. A supernatural metamorphosis that takes place when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in our lives, which begs the question, doesn't it? What happens when we neglect the Word of God in our lives? What happens when our lives are lived in such a way in which we neglect the Word of God? What happens when we treat the Word of God in our life as a trivial add-on instead of the most important thing about the world in which we live? Because we long to see the world through the lens of eternity, through the lens of how God created us to see it. What happens when we treat it as a trivial add-on? I would suggest that we are conformed to this age and not being transformed by the renewal of our minds. It's crucial, brothers and sisters, to be people of the book who recognize that living in this world has consequences. A people who recognize that when you live in this book, it has consequences. Read many good books. Take part in a lot of good things. Be involved in a lot of noble enterprises, but live in this book. Because if you live in the world, you're going to be transformed to the world. Live in this world, live in this book and be transformed by this book. It's crucial for us to be people of the book. Because in God speaking to us, he transforms us from the inside out. He makes us into something new. The only way not to be conformed to this world is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. Your word is is life. It is the bread of life. It is is our sustenance. Can't help but go back and, and think of the Israelites traveling and depending on on manna, come down from heaven, the bread of of life. And Jesus says that he's the bread of life. I pray, Lord, that he would speak to us, that Jesus would teach us, transform us through this word, that your Holy Spirit take that and, and use it to make us into to people that, that bring glory and, and honor to you who are not conformed by the world, but are pushing transformation. Lord, we pray that you would do these things this morning for your honor, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. 
If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.